everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Lead podcast brought to you by Ability, an experiential learning company based in beautiful Austin, Texas. I'm your host, Matthew Confer, and today on the show we have Pamela Slim, the author of the books Escape from Cubicle Nation and Body of Work, which focuses on giving people the tools necessary to have meaningful careers. She is also the co-founder of the Main Street Learning Lab. Thanks so much for joining us today, Pamela. Thanks for having me here. Well, I want to kick off talking about the fact that you spent a part of your early career at a global firm with thousands of employees. Now you work mostly with small business owners, helping them find business success. And one of the things you focus on is defining your audience. Why is that such a critically important component? It's the essence to me of where everything has to start in business because I am the first one to get excited about, <clears throat> excuse me, creating some beautiful product that I think is amazing or some program or service. But unfortunately, if I'm not designing it with my audience in mind, <laughs> it is less likely that it will be successful or relevant or that anybody will buy it if I don't first have the audience in mind. So my background's in instructional design, in performance improvement that I did for many years, and I really always take that as a central premise of what I do. First, you have to think about who are the people who you are really addressing, and we'll talk in a second about the way that I look at that specifically for audience, but if you don't know that from the beginning, I don't see how you can build products or market to people. Hmm. That, it's a fascinating kind of jumping off point because to give you some background, we have listeners to our show who are somewhat early or mid-career trying to kind of figure out where to take things. We have some people a little bit later in their career who are taking a more maybe retrospective look at themselves as a leader. How do you kind of jump off and how do you start figuring out who your audience is? I use a method from my really dear friend and very often professional collaborator, Susan Beyer. She is at audienceaudit.com. She is an attitudinal segmentation researcher, which is a mouthful. Basically what that means is her clients are digital marketing agencies. And so she will do research um, with their customers on their behalf really focusing on attitudinal segmentation. And that point of view says that we have often been trained in business school and elsewhere to define our audience in terms of demographics. So if we want to reach women between the age of 35 and 50 who drive Volvos and live in Mesa, Arizona, or you know, things like that, we're using a lot of the demographic information. And unfortunately, that is really not helpful at all from a starting point, because what Susan argues is that we really need to focus on problems or challenges that we solve that then can be sprinkled on where relevant with specific demographics. So for example, when I first started Escape from Cubicle Nation that started as a blog in 2005 for people who were in a corporate job who wanted to leave and start a business, that was really the central premise of <clears throat> if you are in a corporate job and you are excited to be leaving, but I always said that hating your job intensely is not a business plan, right? You need to actually have a business in order to do it. So if you're eager to leave, but you do not know all the steps that are required to make a successful transition, then that is really a core problem that I solved. So I had 22-year-old 
clients. I had male and female. I had people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds. You, you can see with that particular premise that I was not focusing demographically. I was sharing information about the problem that I solved. And so that's the place to start is really thinking of what are core problems that you solve and what are ways that then you're going to build your product or service to address that problem. You're going to surround yourself with other people. I call them your peanut butter and jellies who provide complementary services that also help your ideal client solve their, their problem. And then of course you build your marketing plan on that where you talk about the problem that you're solving, not just, Hey, are you a woman between the age of 35 and 50? Like that doesn't really ring, <laughs> do anything to me, <laughs> right? Like, yes, I am. But, what does that mean? If you're selling me a car, then what's more important to me is the function that I'll have in the car. Do I want a car that has good gas mileage? Do I want a car that can I can pile in a bunch of kids from the soccer team, right? Not necessarily about my demographic information. So I just want to underline that because many people have been taught that way and taught to describe to define specific marketing avatars, as they call them, with demographic information. And it's not going to be helpful to you. Hmm. I want to dig in there a little bit and, and almost uh, flip it and ask it more of a, a personal question. What, what do you consider as kind of a defining moment for you in figuring out that you, this is the place you wanted to be? And how did you decide to take the risks to start out on your own? And, and what have you learned along the way? For me, it really was, it, it, I feel like the the first, well, the first 10 years of my business, I was a consultant to large companies. So I've gone through two significant transitions. The first was in 1996, leaving Barclays Global Investors, where I was a director of training. And I had turned 30. I had been a very avid martial artist. I, I was a volunteer executive director for a Capoeira group, the Afro-Brazilian martial art. And so I was always busy working 100-hour weeks as one does in their 20s. And then I turned 30. I actually got pneumonia from probably exhaustion. And we had a big merger. And I just was ready for something different. So I, I didn't set out to be an entrepreneur. I was looking for other jobs. I didn't think I was cut out for it. But uh, after a while of not finding any job I liked, I uh, offered my old boss who had gone to Hewlett Packard to do some contract work for her. And that kicked off what was a big realization for me that I loved the core work that I was doing, but I just didn't love being an employee. I really loved to be working for myself. So that, that was that first part of the journey. And then it led to the second one of spending so many years having very deep, sometimes profound, spiritual, emotional conversations with corporate employees, often after I had done some big initiative or meeting or something like that, who would pull me aside and really share their deepest feelings about how they wanted to leave. And I just noticed that there was something about the act of being in a corporate situation where there's a lot of benefit and folks work hard in order to get promoted in that environment. And it's a lot of risk to leave and start a business. So I imagine it like the thought bubble over their head of people are often pretending to be a certain way in corporate while having fears, doubts, concerns, and wanting to leave. And so that's was really the, the initiative that got me excited to be setting up a coaching business to specifically help people to do that. And as a marketing vehicle, I created the blog Escape from Cubicle Nation. Hmm. For, for some reason, I'm always fascinated for a weird reason by the subtitles that authors choose for their books. And the subtitle of the book you wrote, Body of Work, is 
finding the thread that ties your story together. So I think it's a two-part question. Why is that story very important, which I think you've hit on, but maybe the second and more important part of the question is what do most of us get wrong when telling stories about ourselves as professionals? The metaphor that I used in the book is that when we think about all of our skills, experience, scars, you know, everything that, that makes us who we are, think about that as ingredients. So imagine you have a cabinet filled with all these different spices that represent all the different variety of things that you can do. What we do is we, when we're cooking a pot of chili, aka telling somebody what we do or submitting our resume or talking to a potential client, we'll dump all of the spices in the pot of chili. So the fact that I did do cup weather for many years and I was an exchange student and I've been a management consultant and I speak different languages and like all of that may be cool, but if I am talking to a client about growing and scaling their business, I don't really need to mention those things unless they're relevant. So think about it each time that you're having a conversation with somebody about what you do, it's contextual, just like a meal is. You might add a couple little spices that are relevant for that conversation, but keep it focused on what it is that they need to know about you in order to feel comfortable, to trust you, to know that you're capable of doing the work, and to know that other people have done that work successfully with you. Hmm. Well, I've, I've had the pleasure on this show to talk to a lot of people that, like yourselves, are providing this critical insight to business leaders and, and businesses more broadly about making their work better. As a, an owner of a business yourself, what do you personally struggle with? Obviously, this is, is where you, you make your income helping others, but what do you personally struggle with and what do you hope to get better at over the next three, six, or nine months? I think for me, it's usually, I'm, I'm really lucky and that I do have an amazing um, set of clients and, and really I love what I do. I do a lot of work, especially at the Main Street Learning Lab that I co-founded with my husband in really doing more intersectional work. So we work with lots of entrepreneurs of color. We're working with people from all kinds of different backgrounds. And as we're all experiencing in the date in which we're recording this podcast, right? There is, there is so much um, deep, painful history. There are so many things related to really learning how to deeply support and understand different experiences. My husband is Navajo, so I have a deep connection with his lived experience and his family. And to me, that's really the part that I see is because I do have a very diverse customer base, what are ways that I can be continually learning, continually supporting, helping businesses to grow. But from my lens, it's always in a way that's going to be helpful and nourishing and, you know, really helping people to understand kind of the core root and challenges of what people face. And it just feels like I've, you know, I've been in this field for a long time. Ironically, my degree in college was non-formal education as a tool for social economic grassroots change in Latin America. So I lived in, and you're hearing some of my weird ingredients, right? I lived in Mexico, I lived in Colombia, I lived in Brazil. So I've had a deep experience with that, but it just feels so deeply relevant and important and essential right now for doing the kind of work to be supporting each other, to be deepening understanding, and then to really be reconstructing um, what we know is a pretty fractured 
community that we have and also in rebuilding businesses from some of these really serious economic challenges we face driven by driven by the coronavirus driven by you know recent racial incidents and things like that well you can take this next question whatever direction that you want but um what for somebody like yourself who's moving in a lot of different directions and helping people across a lot of different industries and then i'll also add in the caveat also working with family along the way how do you kind of organize yourself for maximum productivity is there anything that you've changed or found especially successful over the last couple of years given kind of all the balls that you're juggling at a given time yeah, I think one thing is in just having regular practices on a daily basis and a weekly and monthly to be clear about what it is that I am working on and what the priority is. I am somebody who loves to work on a variety of things. I do hold a lot of different businesses just in the work that I do with different people. And so on one hand, there's a practice of being very organized to know what I'm working on and what I need to get done in any given week. And then it's something that is like, if you could imagine my brain is a sieve, which actually is pretty accurate some days <laughs> that, that while, for example, I am working on a project or I am uh, having a coaching conversation or teaching a class, I have to have that sieve covered, right? So that I can hold the, the, the container of the topic at hand, the business, what, what, you know, my book proposal I'm working on right now, those things I have to be really deeply focused and I have to be holding that project in my head. As soon as I am done, I have to release it because I literally cannot hold all the things simultaneously in my head. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to concentrate at all. So that's a practice I find that's often a, just a mental practice of, of learning how to be present and then learning how to put projects down. It's backed up by tracking what I'm doing, by having visual reminders, by having things that are calendared, those kinds of things around my projects. But that to me is something that's a really important thing. And I think the second part that's really helpful, uh, that's supported a lot my, by my husband, because he's a traditional um, healer, is, is his whole lineage and, and practice that he does in his business. And so I really practice just a slow, steady pace, taking time to you know take a deep breath, to not be caught up in the huge rush and frenetic energy that often we are we're, we're told that we need to have in business. And I, I've developed a whole very specific method in working with clients, especially around marketing. I call them tiny marketing actions. Um, that's really supported by a lot of research from people like BJ Fogg or uh, from James Clear from Atomic Habits that really is helping people to develop really tiny, small habits every day, particularly marketing, so that I'm not doing a huge tidal wave of activity, but rather every day planting little seeds. And that's what tends to keep my business going. I want to I want to quote from the TED talk that you gave, which was entitled Finding Purpose in the New World of Work. And during that talk, you said, we're constantly connected and aware at all times and always concerned if our career and company will survive another day. And then you talked a little bit about internal security. So you discussed the approach that you kind of advocated from the stage. Can you share that with our listeners? Because I've been in business so long, 24 years now, and obviously worked as an employee before that, I've, I've really seen up close in a very real way 
as many people have who have lived to 53 years like I have, of economic crashes, of huge social disruption, of just this year is, is the epitome for it, of what we all see. And so I don't believe that any one business model or any one job or any one company is ever just the safe bet is going to be the thing that is going to get you through. The internal security is about you developing a set of skills and practices where you are consistently looking for opportunities, you're aware of your skills and strengths, you're actively working on things that you know are problematic that might get in your way of, of um, getting work done or certain kinds of skills you know you need to be successful. And then another really big part is to have a very connected, active network of folks that you're constantly connecting with. It's the topic of the next book that I'm working on um, called The Widest Net. And that's really about looking at things in terms of the ecosystem in which we live, that I'm a small part of it, you're a small part of it. Many of us are doing specific things in order to strengthen our economy, in order to strengthen you know, professionals. And so when we're connected with that, we're much more aware of opportunities that come up. So when business goes away, like it does, like it did for me, maybe for you when the coronavirus hit, I know that I can pivot. I know there's other things that I can do. If a job goes away um, or a big client, then I know that I can do things in order to adjust. It's a very proactive kind of practice because if you've never thought about how you market yourself, if you don't have any kind of leads or connections outside of the narrow niche in which you operate or within your one company, by the time you lose it, it can often be really scary to try to scramble and make things happen. So to me, it's this really that the practices that I laid out in body of work are really the things that when you are connected and aware of them and actively practicing them will keep you continually employable. Hmm. Well, Pamela, that advice is a simply great spot to end the conversation and shift to our final two rapid fire questions that we ask all of our guests. And question number one is this, if you could describe your personal leadership style in one word, what would that word be? I think probably socially active. I, I really do see that to, to be a leader in today's environment is to be aware of all the people in our environment. And I really specifically try to work to be really aware of my own identity, the identity of others, the lived experience of others, and to use that as a primary value as opposed to something that's secondary. Hmm. And our final question is this, what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Um, I think I might have received it like in a um, in a fortune cookie or something, <laughs> but but I had it um, I, I had it written down uh, when I was an exchange student at sixteen when I went to Switzerland for for my first exchange, and it was from Anias Nin, and it said, uh, "We don't see things as they are; we see them as we are." And I just love that as personal guidance. I know when I was abroad the first time, just even though it was a European country, it wasn't terribly different from where I grew up in, in California, it was just different looking at my own country from a different vantage point and, and my culture. And so having that perspective has been so useful. And as we've, it brings us back around to what we talked about for audience, it also helps me to understand that as excited as I get about my own view and vision for a product, what I really need to do is to connect with my ideal customers. 
Well, closing us with a fortune cookie is a great spot to finish. Thanks so much for joining us today, Pamela. Where can our listeners find out more about you? You can find me at PamelaSlim.com. Well, thank you for all the great insight and thank you listeners for joining us. If you enjoyed today's show, we would love a rating and review in your podcast app of choice. And we truly appreciate it when you share our show with your network. You can find me on social media at Matthew Confer, and you can find our organization Ability, that is A-B-I-L-I-T-I-E at Ability.com. And be sure to subscribe so that you get our next episode. And I want to thank all of you for joining us on the Learn to Lead podcast. Thank you.